Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Erling Kaga is a prominent Norwegian explorer and book publisher. He's also an important art collector. He recently published a book, A Poor Collector's Guide to Buying Great Art. I spoke to him at Art Basel in Miami Beach last December. I think the best way to introduce you is that you began your career as an adventurer, um, surmounting the three poles, as you put it. Do you and a, a partner uh, traveled solo or unassisted to the North Pole, and then you traveled solo to the South Pole, and then you climbed Everest. And you followed that publishing a number of books. You were a lawyer for a, a period of time. You eventually bought, a, uh, started your own publishing house and acquired other Norwegian publishing ha- houses. I wanted to ask you how being um, an adventurer either helped you or guided you in becoming an art collector. Are there similarities? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, I think everybody is uh, born an explorer uh, in the sense that when I look at my own kids, they want to climb before they could walk. They were always wondering what was beyond the door or what was hiding behind, behind the horizon. So I think that's a natural state of being. But somehow that spirit is diluted uh, quite a bit when they grow up. Um, but uh, I have kept it and um, I believe in making life more difficult than necessary uh, especially if you're born in Norway and you know like I am uh, life could be very easy easy going and that's also one reason to collect uh, contemporary art because it is uh, very difficult to, to understand what you're doing and what is, what is great art and what is not great art. So, um, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a matter of exploration to venture into the world of contemporary art. And what was the first uh, inspiration or um, uh, impetus uh, for you to buy art? Was it something you saw uh, that you suddenly realized you had to have, or did you start with the idea that you wanted to become an art collector and then educated yourself? No, I never decided on becoming an art collector. Uh, one day I was. Um, but I bought my first piece 30, 32 years ago, late at night um, at a party at the artist's house. And he um, was short on red wine. I had some red wine. So I bought a Lito from him for two bottles. Um, the Lito was obviously about uh, jealousy. Let's uh, Edward Munch inspired. Um, and uh, my girlfriend had just left me, so I kind of identified with the piece. Um, I still have it, I still like it, but of course today uh, my taste has developed since. And then I didn't have so much money for many years, but then as I said, I went into publishing to to create a business and to be able to buy a house for my family. And, um, and after I bought a house, I had more money and uh, I kept, I started buying art. And I spent all my money on buying art last 15 years. 
Uh, I think later we're going to talk about the advantage of collecting with very little money or, or one, because that's the theme of the, the book's title, uh, but I, you have some interesting views on uh, how that uh, empowers or enables you to be a better collector. But I wanted to stick with the exploration theme because in your book you cite a motto for climbing Everest. Uh, and you, you mention it as a, a model for how to uh, buy art, especially challenging, unfamiliar art, not the stuff that you already know and comforting. And, and that motto is, think ahead, travel light, and leave your fears behind. Can you talk about how that works in something like either an art fair or going to galleries, talking to collectors? <laughs> yeah, I think it, it makes sense um, because quite often it's, at least for me, uh, it's hard to understand really why I like a piece. I go into an art show and I don't even you know, necessarily like what I see. I'm just kind of curious about it. And since uh, I, like most of the art collectors, have to work uh, hard to <laughs> have money to buy art, um, I don't have as much time as professional people. So then somehow, I think as an art collector, you need to be ahead of your own taste because you can't wait until all, all time at least. Sometimes I like something right away, but all the times you have to accept it's going to spend days or weeks or years before you start to understand uh, great art. Um, and then you have to kind of, as I said, just yeah, be ahead of your own taste. Uh, and uh, quite often I'm asked, do you buy things you don't like? Uh, and of course I do. Uh, I mean, it's not about liking or not liking. I mean, it's something that catches my interest. And that's why I think this thing about thinking ahead, uh, traveling light and leave your fears behind is obviously a good um, rule of thumb uh, as an explorer, but also as an art collector. Yeah, and, and I would say that the thinking ahead seems like you have some broader idea of what you're trying to accomplish as a collector uh, in your own personal uh, uh, journey, if we can use that term. And the travel light seems to apply to maybe not uh, worrying about spending so much money, but looking for the things that you uh, can afford and can afford to make uh, uh, mistakes, and then leave your fears behind is not always needing to understand what, what, what you're doing. Yeah, I think, and it's, you, you know, it's leaving your fears behind also in the sense that you have to accept that you do mistakes. Um, and uh, but you know the old Arabic expression, the dogs are barking, but the caravan has to move on. So you do mistakes, and you know, that's part of life. Uh, speaking of mistakes, the, the, one of the challenging parts of the art world is just dealing with um, how complex it is. That uh, uh, not everything is obviously known. It's not like walking into a store or you know buying a car and saying I'll take that model in in that co color. It, it's it's a, a a very opaque world. And you mention uh, in the book that there are no rules; there are only deals. And I was wondering if you could uh, expand on that. Well, how does that help people think as a new collector? Yeah, I think it's it's um, definitely very few rules uh, in the art world, which 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 uh, I like. But also as a collector, um, uh, uh, you have to choose. I think you know between uh, who you're going to hang out with, who you're going to 
spend time with to get uh, uh, the best pieces because after all the only things that matters is that you get great pieces for at fair prices and then you have to choose if you're going to kind of curators, critics, the artists, uh, blah 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 uh, or the gallerists and I, early on I got the advice to kind of focus on the gallerists because they're kind of the gateway to the, the really good pieces, they're making the decisions so and I live a busy life, and I really don't need many more friends. Like, you know, I'm not into the art world to get more friends. I think it's really nice, but it's, that's not the reason. So, it's, so then I have been focusing all the time on, um, on spending time uh, with the gallerist. Um, but I end up having also very good friends among the artists and other people. But to get the good pieces, you need to somehow... Uh, uh, influence the galleries that you get the first choice and um, so you and also get the good advices about you know what the galleries think etc etc and then you make a decision uh, preferably uh, before uh, other collectors but but you do say in the book that it's been important to you to meet and spend time with other collectors that especially uh, uh, Long-standing collectors with, with large and deep collections have been a real source of information for, for you. Um, one, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about getting to know various collectors, whether there's a strategy or it's just, you know, circumstance, how it comes about. But also, do you buy from other collectors? Do you do private deals or do you focus on, on working through galleries? I usually only buy from galleries, a few, few exceptions, but mostly all, all, only for galleries. I'm very loyal to the galleries, that loyal to me. I hardly buy at auctions. Uh, I hardly ever sell. Um, and in terms of these uh, collectors, uh, I don't necessarily have to know these collectors, but to kind of see what they collect is, uh, I think, very inspiring because it's so many really good collectors. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, for me to see that others are doing, um, or have been doing a better job than myself, is uh, really good, because I need, you know, you need to be, you should never be too self-confident, and there's always someone out there who's better than yourself. Um, to me, that's really enriching. Not in the sense that it's uh, a competition. Of course, it's a competitive edge, but more like uh, to see what's possible. Well, let's talk about the competition because there seems to be a, a healthy level of competition at all levels between the gallerists themselves, between collectors, uh, uh, you know, among the artists. Uh, the, there's a competitive drive uh, uh, to art collecting. Where do you draw the boundary on that Competition is—is is there a, a, an invisible line where you know uh, not to cross? No, not really. Not it's uh, to me. It's kind of a love affair. This uh, art thing, and as I said, there are hardly any rules. And uh, although I'm a lawyer, uh, I don't appreciate rules in my daily life. So if I want something, I just go for it, and I can't really see any boundaries. So. I was listening to people yesterday saying that, you know, what they regret or, you know, the art pieces they remember are the pieces they didn't manage to buy and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I have very few of those experiences. I usually 
just go for it and uh, get what I want. Because you're just willing to pay whatever it takes? Yeah, uh, but you know, in the primary market, it's, the prices are usually fixed. Uh, so you can always bitch on a discount. Uh, but I usually don't discuss discount. I usually get a good discount. Uh, but it's much more important to get the best pieces. And uh, it's important to remember that most galleries, they're not be better off than myself. So it's neither are the artists. So I'm kind of careful about not being too pushy on these matters. I pay what they ask me to pay if I want to have a piece. Uh, and you pay on time. I pay on time. I also I, I not even pay normally pay on time. But quite often I pay more the same day as I get the invoice, which takes people by surprise. But of course, if I'm short on cash, I have to wait. But uh, but but for galleries to get you know the money right away, you know that makes an impression. So, in the book, you tell the story uh, that you bought a um, Richard Prince uh, nurse painting, and it eventually became so valuable you sold it, uh, and you were happy to have sold it because it provided you with uh, more money to buy more art. And, and in another place in the book, you talk about, you know, everyone likes to make a profit, uh, uh, though that's not the goal of art collecting, and the profits come in other ways. Do you mean the, because you can use the money again or because there's a different sort of profit from knowing that you bought something and then you were able to... Um, sell it for so much more money? Um, uh, that nurse painting was a very special case for me because it went up exactly 100 times in value. Uh, so I bought for 50,000, sold for 5 million. And uh, so that made a kind of total change from my own kind of uh, economic perspective. I spent all the money on, uh, I took my kids on safari and I spent the rest of the money on art. Um, so it's... Uh, uh, so I said, I don't, I don't like to sell, but in that circumstance, I, I mean, I like the piece, but I like the money much more. Uh, I never miss that work. I'm just really relieved I got rid of it at the right time. Uh, it gave me lots of freedom. So, so you've never had any regrets about, about that? It, wasn't, it, it was a necessary thing to do to be able to buy more art. It was just, it was time. Someone wanted to pay so much more yeah, for and it. Also, you were but, happy to... But for me, I have better pieces by Richard Prince, which I also bought at very fair prices. So uh, that nurse was, uh, I, I, I think it's a fantastic piece, but um, I liked the other pieces I had by Richard Prince more. You talk in the book about buying quality, and, and how important it is to focus on buying quality works. But you don't really define quality, and maybe that's because it's different for every uh, collector. But I, I did want to ask you, how would you guide someone else into determining what quality works are for them? I think it's, you know, the most common advice in the art world is to see as much as possible to read and to listen to people. And I think that's, that's a very good advice, uh, obviously. But uh, I read Ella Broad and interviewed him. Uh, uh, of course, one of the most accomplished uh, collectors uh, in the world. Uh, and he said that you need to spend time, don't rush, don't buy, blah, blah, blah. 
But I think, you know, I think it's smarter to do as Ela Broad does uh, rather than what, you know, follow his advice and to start to buy. Because if you're going to get the feeling or quality, what you appreciate, etc., uh, as a collector, you have to actually start buying. And uh, so my advice for people is to, you know, buy three pieces. So it's so many wannabe collectors that end up not buying art at all because they're thinking too much. So I think, you know, to read, listen, talk, see art, and then start buying. And you buy those three pieces, you take them to your home or your office or wherever, you live with the art, you see what you appreciate, what you grow with, what you don't grow with, and uh, then go from there. Is it important to you to have other people's opinions on the works that you buy? Yeah, but you know, it's yeah. It's, I think it's always important to you know to to to, to gain respect, uh, etc. But thing is, uh, when a gallerist comes to my home, they walk around the house. It's not that big, and they stop uh, in front of a piece they have sold you and say, "This is a really great work," and then they hardly see the other pieces. So it's kind of uh, so kind of. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's uh, I don't think that much about it, but it's, yeah. But, it's, but I think it's really nice when people, you know, I had a show in Oslo throughout the summer with art from my collection at the Astroferne Museum, and that 50,000 people buy tickets to see the art I have been collected. I think it's, uh, um, uh, it's a fantastic privilege. And it gives meaning, although I'm not collecting uh, because I would like to help other people or blah, blah, blah. I think it's a fantastic consequence that uh, others can appreciate it. So I, I wanted to go back to this issue of collecting uh, without a lot of money or, or recognizing that having unlimited money can be a detriment to being a, a, a good or even a great uh, collector. And in and, and somewhat you faced this situation when you suddenly had... Four million nine hundred thousand uh, dollars to spend on art, where you clearly didn't have that budget beforehand. Um, what's different when you're approaching it without uh, a lot of money? And what did you do when you had much more money to help, you know, mitigate the effect of having sort of an unlimited uh, checkbook? I think in general life, it's I think it's unhealthy to have you know unlimited amount of money to spend. Uh, I mean, just to look around you, uh, people in that situation, they always look very unhappy. Uh, but also as art collectors, uh, in my book I write about this, a friend of mine, I was in, in Venice at, uh, I'm a bit dys dyslectic, but it's Ponte della Dogana, Dogana uh, this uh, Pinot's place in, uh, in, in Venice. And he had this Jeff Koons, etc., exhibited really beautifully. And my friend was standing next to Viktor Pinchuk, this uh, Ukrainian guy uh, who has made a business out of ripping off his own poor people. And, uh, and, um, and he was standing there kind of pointing at different Jeff Koons and said like, I have that one, I have that one too, I have that one, just like a little kid in a candy store. And, and it kind of, you know, it's very uncharming. But it's also, if you see that those people's collections, although, you know, they can have great pieces, uh, it doesn't have a soul. At least I, I can't see the soul. But when you go to, you know, other people who have, always have to choose one out of two or five pieces and really have to kind of maybe sometimes take on debt to buy the piece and, 
and uh, you know suffer not in a maybe proper sense of the word but still suffer quite a bit uh, worry uh, to be able to buy this art and uh, love the art they buy um, it's a totally different collection and also you can see this kind of strange pieces which are very, very much like in private collection I can see that pieces that somehow does not fit in but it's due because the collector or the collector couple whatever uh, that's what they like. That's what they kind of appreciate. And, uh, and, and collections that are kind of perfect, it's, it's quite often boring. Uh, I, uh, one gallerist once described one of the most famous uh, collectors active today as the problem with his collection is there are no mistakes. Exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. When you have so much advice, so much money, you buy nothing but A, A-plus A works, you end up with a collection that doesn't have personality and doesn't have conviction uh, uh, that way. Uh, so when you suddenly found yourself in a different collecting situation, did you create rules? Did you just buy slightly more expensive works? I mean, how did you approach being you know, overnight a, a different sort of collector, at least potentially, with uh, more money to spend? I have been forced to buy more expensive works because uh, art has simply become more expensive. I remember 15 years ago, uh, or maybe 13 years, 14 years ago, I was going to Miami for the first time, and I looked at uh, the price for airplane tickets, and by kind of finding a really cheap ticket from Oslo to Miami, I could afford another Raymond Pettibon. But of course, uh, and it's not on the Pettibon, but you know, all art somehow has become much more expensive on this level. Of course, 99% of all the art, art produced in the world is still very, very reasonable, because it's not a market for it. But... Uh, this fair, uh, I would think the average price has increased dramatically. So, um, so it has become more expensive, but I still prefer to buy early uh, when an artist kind of getting uh, too costly. Uh, I usually stop buying. Uh, I leave it to others. And that's also because I think it's uh, curiosity is very much a kind of a major force for me and um, yeah but I mean no rules without exemptions so I bought a Wolfgang Tillmans this summer so as silver so I mean that's an artist everybody knows about great respected very expensive blah blah so sometimes I do it and an artist you already own a fair amount of work out. yeah so that's also with, uh, with Tillmans I kind of feel that I should have a silver I, I think I have a great collection by him, but I thought I should have a silver, and somehow a big silver is nicer than a small silver So to me. So it was expensive, but I think it was worth it. And how do you discover uh, new artists, uh, especially now that we have different venues. It used to be you came, it used to be you went to galleries and, and maybe found a new gallerist every once in a while who had new artists. Now we have art fairs, and then on top of the art fairs, we have the social media and images flying around. Do you still stick with relationships that you trust? Are you trying to get out ahead of those relationships? I definitely stick with the relationships I trust. Uh, as I said, I, I believe in loyalty, uh, which has paid off big time for myself. Uh, but still, you know, I talked to different people, new people, email, talk to, you know, see art uh, all the time. 
So I mean, I'm not leaving it to the others. Uh, but I think, you know, here just at this fair, I think it's uh, uh, just like an artist like, I don't know, the artist I don't collect, but like uh, Carl Holmquist, when you get into entrance B on the left-hand side, you see this uh, uh, light piece, uh, this mother piece. Yep. Uh, it's $25,000, and some galleries will tell you that's, that's cheap, but of course, that's not cheap. That's a lot of money. But still, it's a fantastic piece. Carl Honkis has been around for years. You had a hard time getting a gallery in New York at all, as far as I know. And, uh, although, but everybody who was following kind of that part of the art scene knew Carl Honkis was a fantastic artist. So I think quite often it's not that difficult to find new talent. Carl Honk is not that new talent, but he was just not an appreciated talent. So, um, and the same with another, I think he's Swedish, and Clara Leiden, another Swede. Uh, you, she was, you know, well-respected for several years, uh, being at museums, etc. but the market didn't pick up. Same with Richard Prince, the whole, you know, all curators loved Richard Prince, but somehow the collectors didn't. So I think it's like this, you know, it's, I think it's, I'm just surprised that the market is as slow as it is with many artists. And then, of course, you have Oscar Marius and all these other guys who goes up like this. But <laughs> the only disadvantage, of course, it, it will, you know, it, it will not stand, you know, keep, keep up that level. Uh, I'm going to take uh, questions in a second, so if you want to ask a question, raise your hand. There's a microphone, or actually a couple of microphones uh, that will go around. But before I do, I, I did want to ask you about, you mentioned this briefly in the, in the book, and it's very much the big topic about um, selling art online. And now that people have these kinds of loose relationships where they may not um, spend a lot of time uh, uh, knowing each other in person, but they, they see each other either around fairs or on social media, and they're able to be in contact with, the, with each other. Do you see more of this moving into that, uh, you know, realm of social media and then the often talked about online transactions uh, uh, for art? Uh, or, or do you feel like there is a line between the two worlds? Uh, uh, for me, it is. I like to I still buy, uh, buy art uh, just the, from JPEGs uh, quite often, but from people I trust, um, uh, galleries I trust. But and then some, maybe I know a person in the city that can go to see the piece for me, etc. But I think for many others, uh, online sales, you know, uh, the market is going to grow dramatically. Uh, maybe I will jump on it too, but uh, as I said, I, you know, I, I buy from maybe, you know, maybe 20 different galleries, whatever, and, uh, and uh, so it's, it's not hard to hold track. But I see some of my friends nowadays, they buy online, they shop, they find, you know, an artist like Josh Smith, which I very much appreciate. If you're good, you can buy a painting for $10,000, uh, same size as cost $65,000. And, uh, you know, but I would think I'd rather pay top price and get a fantastic uh, Josh. Uh, but, but maybe I'm wrong in terms of the quality. And others buy it for $10,000. And of course, you know, with those windows opportunities, it's fantastic. 
And, but does that greater access to work increase the uh, amount of work that you buy? I mean, I, I, I presume you don't have a set <clears throat> budget of, you know, I'll buy 10 works this year. But uh, there must be some sort of point where you say, okay, maybe I've bought enough uh, for now, and yet you have more opportunities to see and be presented art, whether it's someone sending you a JPEG or uh, learning about it at, at an art fair. Uh, is that increasing the amount, or does it just require you to be more selective because you see so much more? I try to be selective, but it's, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, to be an art collector, uh, it's kind of an absurd undertaking. It's, I can't explain to my mother in a rational way why I spend so much money on warehouse. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a bit craziness. And that's also, I think, you know, in this book, I think, you know, if you're not obsessed, you'll never become a kind of an art collector. You can buy art, but to be an art collector, you need to be totally obsessed. I think you just have to go for it. It's, it's, it's a love story. <laughs> well, with that obsession and love, uh, do we have some questions? After all of that, no questions? How many artworks do you actually... Uh, sorry. How, how many artworks do you actually possess? Uh, I'm not sure. And also, as a matter of defining what, you know, if uh, editions, etc., you know, big editions, but maybe, like, you know, it's 700-ish. So most of your art is now in storage, then? Are you, yeah, yeah. Most are in storage, then. Uh, but I kind of circulate in my home quite frequently. To some of the old art I have have been through my house. And uh, like New Year's Eve a few years ago, I was alone. I was supposed to be up in the mountains. It was hurricanes. I had to get back to the city. So I took all the art. My kids were away. And I took all the art from my basement, under my bed, in my lockers, just filled up my sitting room with art. And I was sitting there for three days, enjoying the art, being kind of slightly intoxicated every evening. And then when my family returned on the airport, I just, you know, packed it all away. Again. So and, and, and doing that whole survey, there was not one thing you said, you know, maybe I should sell that, I don't need that anymore? I don't like to, I, you know, I, kind of, I don't like to sell. I like to. I like to have. It's kind of. It's kind of my thing, and it's. I think it's kind of American attitude. It's more maybe like you know trading. You know that kind of. But kind of, we Norwegians. We're not. We've never been great traders. At least I have never been a great trader. I, you know, but I like to make good deals. I have a commercial mind, but you know, like get as much quality uh, per dollar. Yeah, there. There's. Uh a recent billionaire whose collection was sold who clearly liked his money more than, than he liked the art. He liked art, but he always liked to get a good deal on it. And there are many other billionaires who seem to clearly like the art more than their money because they're happy to pay you know, whatever it takes to have these very large collections. But when you get to a collection of 700 works, and I presume that the rate you're buying and the age you, you are, you're pretty soon going to get to an institutional size. Do you sort of think through where this all goes, or you just you'll deal with that when it happens? I don't think too much about it. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I think most entrepreneurs uh, think they will live for a very long time. Uh, but obviously, it's too much for my kids. Um, so it, it you know it's either you know if when you look at auction catalogs, 
you see what happens when you die. <laughs> Your kid sells it all uh, right away at a pathetic prices because you know they don't even know how to sell and don't get good advice. So that's kind of you know so that's kind of that's very bad. So that's one alternative, and another alternative, of course, is to give it more or less all away. But maybe it's a third way. I don't know. I hope so. Well, the the third way that's become very popular now is to to open your own private museum. I mean, there are several here uh, in Miami. There are increasing numbers uh, all around the the world. Certainly in in Asia, uh, at all. Is that something you see wanting to do with your collection? I don't think so. Uh, it's not me. Uh, I rather give it away to another museum. Uh, I think it's cool, like in Miami, when they when they do it. But it's, uh, it's not so much me, and I don't have the money either to, you know, I'd rather spend the money on art, so it's, um, so then I have to marry rich, which is not very likely. And your, your kids, are they involved in the, the art? Do they see it as just part of the background noise of uh, family life, or is it something that, that they're engaged in? Uh, today, they very much love the art. As you can see in the book, too, they live with the art. Uh, but I remember when they were small, and they were kind of fed up with this art all over the house. I told my oldest daughter, if you sell this painting, you can buy uh, this store up in the, you know, five minutes walk away that sell all these sweets. Uh, and then she kind of understood the value of the piece, and <laughs> she got some, some more respect. But she didn't ask you to sell. No, <laughs> she probably wished, but uh, she got some sweets anyway. What's your opinion of art advisors? Do you have one? Um, you mentioned the importance of gallerists, but not art advisors. Uh, I think you know art advisors are like anything else. Some are really good, some are not. Uh, for me, it's not important for, with an art advisor because I think you know part of the thrill is to do it myself. Uh, but uh, some art advisors, I think you know, they give good advice. You know, the hardworking people, so they get lots of shit uh, quite often. But you know, I respect good art advisors. But obviously, also so many lousy art collect art advisors and some kind of not so good art advisors. And uh, so it's with them as everybody else. Uh, so, uh, and I, but I also talked to some galleries that prefer to deal with art advisors because they have uh, more knowledge uh, quite often than, uh, than, than the buyers. And while the buyers, they have a kind of a surplus of cash and a deficit of uh, cultural capital, uh, the art advisor can help them. So, you know, some of them are good, but... But I think, you know, I think it's a bit, to me, it would be a bit boring. Then I'd rather do something else. Do, do you have um, uh, art advisors who appro approach you with deals? I mean, you're, you're uh, uh, certainly a prominent collector, but... Yeah, I can't remember. It's, uh, certainly has happened, but uh, uh, I, I can't, you know, because I'm not the right person. Not, not enough to remember. You had mentioned that you have a commercial mind, yet it's a bit of a love story. So I'm curious, how do you balance the practical decisions with the emotional attachment or movement through the art, since it's kind of an emotional experience, yet value-driven moment? Yeah, it's, uh, um, 
Uh, it changes all the time, but also as a publisher, uh, one of the reasons I went into publishing was because I liked this kind of combination between the commercial attitude and also in understanding of the intellectual side. And if you look at publishers are only thinking commercially, you know, eventually they go bust. And also publishers who also only think about the intellectual side, they also go bust. So somehow you need to have the combination. And sometimes I just buy something with my heart. Uh, and other times it's less hard and more kind of, you know, thinking about the deal. So it's, I wish I could kind of give you a proper answer, but this is kind of changing all the time. But I think it's, uh, I think it's, I, I kind of respect both sides because sometimes you meet people who kind of have a dis dislike of the commercial part. But I also respect the commercial part, but also as with not having, uh, of course, I'm rich by most standards, but uh, compared to many other art collectors, I'm not. Uh, so I have to think about money on the commercial side too. But I don't think too much about how it's going to appreciate in value, etc. It's um, uh, then I would just buy paintings, uh, but I would think that was a bit boring. So. It, it Sort of semi on that theme, you tell a story in the book about wanting to buy a Franz West um, series of uh, seven uh, sculptures, six, six, six sculptures, that um, replace the hood ornament of a Rolls Royce. And then when you bought the work, you discovered that the Rolls Royce was part of the work as its plinth, and you had to buy that uh, uh, as well. Um, that's obviously a commercial, it's a more expensive thing to buy a Rolls-Royce along with these uh, works, though maybe the Rolls-Royce was much cheaper than the, the series of uh, works. But you also now have a Rolls-Royce. What did you do with it? Is it still part of the work? You no, know, it's, uh, I'm not into cars. I grew up with a car. Uh, my parents didn't have a driving license, so we didn't have a TV. So, uh, but I, I, I just saw this imitation card with Franz, show with Franz West in the Bärbel Gresslin in, in Frankfurt. It was standing next to this Rolls Royce where the ornament was taken away. I had this pastuk, this very kind of phallus symbol, uh, instead of this Emily in, uh, in the front. And I thought, you know, I just have to buy that piece. So I got hold of a Gresslin, and I was back and forth, and I think she wanted to sell it to a museum or something, but they were slow. So I pushed on, and then she said, it's not one sculpture, it's six sculptures, one for each working day. I said, okay, I'll buy all six. And then I knew uh, uh, the prices of France West was going to go up because so many things were happening. So I felt I was in a kind of a rush. So I agreed on the price. I thought it was a bit expensive, but still uh, I knew you know, this is absolutely you know, super important piece. And uh, now as a tombstone for France West in, uh, in, in Vienna, they had made a copy of the one in front of my Rolls Royce at his height. Um, so but anyway, so... We agreed on the price. I got the invoice. And of course, the sculptures, the, the car was a part of uh, uh, the art piece, but I thought I had to buy another Rolls Royce. But, uh, but when I got the invoice, it said six sculptures, so-and-so, and one Rolls Royce, Silver Shadow, 1970. So kind of sometimes you feel cheated by an art dealer, but this time I felt <laughs> very fortunate. But you still won't tell me what you did with the car. Is it in I, uh, the car? Yeah, no, no, no. The car I drive every summer. 
so I had them to make a kind of a, eventually a copy. But first couple of years, I drove it with the original piece. But of course, when people drink in Oslo, like any other place, they like to kind of fool with it. <laughs> so I drive it all summer, and then I have it in a garage in the winter. And it's really kind of people start to just start to laugh when you drive down the street to kind of point. So it kind of, it's, I put a hat down like this, so they don't recognize me, and then I drive and have a good time. Uh, two questions. Um, and I imagine in the beginning of the conversation, you maybe commented on how your interest in collecting was first sparked and uh, the, what drove you to become the collector you are today. And then as part of that, I'm wondering, given the uh, example you gave of pulling all the work out and looking at it and then putting it all back, it seems that the aesthetic of installation is not important to you. Um. Uh, the aesthetics is definitely important, but it's that's kind of in my in my home. Uh, I put a great effort in how I hang and present the work, uh, and also rehang quite frequently. So this is very time-consuming thing, but I still do it a lot. But then when I'm alone with it, like you know, just kind of fill up the whole house, then that just then it's kind of the singular pieces. But, uh, uh, but in hanging in general and taking care of the art, uh, I'm very focused. And in terms of you said that about you know, how to start collect, I think uh, uh, curiosity has been a driving force uh, the, whole, the whole way. And it's, to me, it's a matter about exploration. And it's a fantastic privilege to be able to buy great art. And I actually think about it most every day that I'm a very fortunate person. I think more people should be aware that they are fortunate. And, and I don't think it hurts to recapitulate the story you told at the beginning about how you didn't intend to buy art. You, had, you were with an artist and you got into a, literally a transaction, of a, a barter transaction that was your first art purchase. How did you go to the second one? Uh, the second art piece I bought was uh, from my cousin, who's an artist. And um, I'm probably the only collector of her art. She's my age. I think she's a fantastic artist, but she's one out of, you know, 99 out of 100 or 999 out of 1,000. Does not have a market, but she's still a fantastic artist. So I keep on buying her works, and I have a piece in my book and I exhibit in my home. Uh, so I bought a few pieces by her, and then, you know, I bought some all the Norwegian artists uh, until I understood that everything in Norway is extremely expensive. So, um, so uh, then I went abroad and, uh, and uh, somehow art in Norway, now art, art in New York was more reasonable than art in Oslo. Do we have any more questions? Do we have a microphone? There we go. It, we'll start there, we'll get to everyone. Um, my question is, what kind of budget should a poor collector plan on setting aside for collecting? <laughs> you know, I put that title, A Poor Collector's Guide to Buying Great Art, also in a uh, humorous way. Uh, uh, but I think I, I write that if you, for instance, have $5,000, uh, oh. I would recommend you know, people to travel to an art fair to see as much art as possible, visit galleries, 
and subscribe to some good art magazines. And then I think also within those $5,000, you can buy some fantastic editions. I'm surprised by business artist space, but also many others. Uh, you can buy uh, editions for two and $400 of good artists, great pieces. So I think that's definitely a good place to start. And I, I buy them even if I, you know, I don't know why I buy them, I just like them. It's, uh, it's more expensive to, to frame them than to buy them. So, it's, uh, so I think that's a good start. But in terms of budget, I don't know. I, I never had a budget myself. And if I had, I would definitely spend much more money than the budget allowed. So, uh, uh, but of course, to be a collector is, it's very costly. So it's, um, so it's, um, yeah. It sounds like it's, it's actually as, especially on that level, it's as or more costly getting to and seeing and relating to the people than it is to actually buy the works. The, the, you know, coming to Miami is you're going to spend uh, as much as you would on uh, as you know spending $5000 for a work here and if you're going to go to lots of art fairs and get yourself if you don't live in a city with a lot of art galleries you're going to probably spend more money in your first few years on learning than you are on the actual art yeah uh, it's it's uh, uh, Miami is certainly extremely expensive uh, but I, I live in Norway so I recommend people to go to Berlin, which, you know, costs a few hundred dollars uh, with a plane, set a hotel, and go to see all the, you know, all, all the shows. Uh, most great artists are represented by Berlin Gallery. There's hardly any great collectors in, uh, in Berlin. Of course, you have Boros and a few others are really good, but uh, beyond that, very few. Uh, so it's not so much competition. So, uh, for me, I, I also buy in New York and London, but of course, then it's so many other fatter cats than myself, uh, while in, in, in Berlin, uh, or, yeah, so it's, mm, Berlin, it's, it's possible to, to, to not spend much money, but uh, on other than art. Uh, I'm, I'm meant to wrap it up, so this will be the last question. Is it important to you to support the local scene at all? Uh, no. I should probably say yes, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm only here for a few days. So if I was able to choose, I would, but uh, I really haven't uh, thought about it. Sorry. I wish I was more. <laughs> what, what, uh, I'm sorry, which local are we referring to? Do you, do you feel uh, any obligation in Oslo to be a part of and support, even if it's just the, the collectors. Def definitely, uh, but I thought just here, just here in Miami. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought you meant to, if I've gone to galleries in Miami because I didn't have, to, I, I don't have time. But uh, yeah, in, in Oslo, definitely, big time, uh, and that's good for me too because I want you know I want the art community in Oslo to be blooming. And then you have to be responsible uh, for supporting it. So that, yeah, that's a big part of it. And it's, uh, it pays off in many different ways. Absolutely. And we have, you know, we have standard gallery in Oslo, a few other galleries. And, you know, uh, I try to support them and support artists there. And artists not represent, represented them there. And yeah, blah, 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 uh, big time. And that's part of the fun. 
And with that, I'm going to close with another commercial. You can buy this book outside, or Erling would be happy to sign them for you. And I uh, hope you'll join me in thanking him for spending this time with us. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 